subject of life and a sermon a little more attuned to the sanctity of human life Sunday, but we want to continue this morning in our work in Malachi chapter 3. Last week we spent some time characterizing the nature or the idea of suddenness as it's used in this passage in Malachi and elsewhere really in scripture. And it's very difficult at times to convey the urgency of spiritual matters in a world that is so enveloped in sensual matters. There is a real urgency in spiritual matters, a true urgency in them, and they need to be attended to with care and with thoughtfulness and with earnestness. And with that in mind this morning, I want to encourage you to just take a look at yourself for a moment. All of you, young people, young children, and, and we older ones alike, all of us. Think of how, as we read a moment ago, you are so wonderfully made. So wonderfully made. Think about who and what you are by the creative hand of God. You're more than just a throbbing, breathing mass of cells. Your mind and your consciousness, your sense of presence, and your sense of being tells you that you are a special creation. And they also tell you that death is not the likely or the proper end of you or the supposed end of you. You have a soul that makes up the essence of who you are. And that soul has a powerful sense of uniqueness that you know of. You know that. In your heart of hearts, you know that you who are, that is, are alive and are being, you're not just a splinter out of some gigantic cosmic intelligence. You know that when you look at yourself. You know that you're not that splinter that will someday wind its way back into the universe when you breathe your last in this world. You are a conscious, real, living person, unique in yourself. You know that you are a single and unique being whose makeup, body and soul, is extraordinary and very specific. And that uniqueness, that sense of life and presence that is you, whispers into your ear. And really into the ear of all men and women. And what it whispers is, I'm not a product of evolution. 
Because by its very nature, that would dictate a growing uniformity and conformity, wouldn't it? We would all be more alike. We would all be more the same. Not so diverse and so different. Not so unique. It tells you that you're not any such thing. But that you're an exceptional creation of the God who made all things. Now, it's true we have some things in common because we're human beings. But every one of you in this room is unique in your own specific and special way. And you're aware of it. You know that you're not just a clone of somebody else. And it's that reality that brought King David to say, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My soul knows it. I realize that. When I think about it, when I think about who I am, I know I'm not you. And you know you're not me. And so I know there's a uniqueness that God has established in me. And David, looking that in, on that in himself, says, here I am, I am fearfully and wonderfully made, both in my body and in my mind and my spirit, and my soul knows it very well. That I'm not an accident, that I'm not just something that grew out of something else, but I am the work of God. Now don't be tempted by the vain musings of men and women to deny the witness of your own heart and your own soul or the testimony of God's word. Remember what the Bible says. It is the fool who says in his heart that there is no God. There are many reasons why the Bible says that. And beloved, one of them is this. God has nothing to gain by your acknowledgement of him. God has nothing to gain by your acknowledgement of him. It makes him no richer or no greater in himself. In Job chapter 22, verses 2 to 3, we read, Can a man be profitable to God? Surely he who is wise is profitable to himself. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are in the right? Or is it gain to him if you make your ways blameless? What's being asked there is if you acknowledge God and you glorify God by your behavior, does it change him in any way? And it doesn't. He is God and he will always be God. And he is glorified either in the obedience of men or in the punishment of the disobedience of men. It doesn't matter. He isn't changed by that. When we glorify him, it blesses us and certainly bears testimony to who he is, but it doesn't change who he is. In verse 35, verse 7, it says, If you are righteous, what do you give to him? What are you presenting him with if you just do what you're supposed to do? Or what does he receive from your hand? Of course, the answer is nothing. 
There is not anything a man can do or does by which God can be profited, which is a very great truth, though misapplied to Job through a wrong construction of his words and meaning. The point is, though, no man, even by the best of men and by the best things they can do, can be profitable to God. As for bad men, they are altogether unprofitable to themselves and to others, and still less profitable to God. And as for good men, their goodness extends not to the Lord. Psalm 16.2. It comes from him. It is his own previously. It is of no avail and advantage to him who is perfect and all-sufficient. So the point is, beloved, your faith doesn't profit him in any way. But, oh, how that faith profits you. What profit it brings to you. What blessing and comfort and encouragement and strength it brings into your life. He's no gainer by it, but you gain everything by it. Never, and in no other context, have so many gracious and loving appeals been made out of so little self-interest and such earnest desire towards others than those invitations, those calls by God for you to turn to him, to put your faith in him, to come to him for salvation. Never has there been so many invitations with such selfless interest. When a man first sees something in a woman that he admires, he may make some approaches to her to kind of establish a relationship. But it's very seldom totally selfless. There's something there that he wants for himself. Not only to give, but to share and to have returned to him. In this sense, this is selfless in the Lord. It is him calling on you because this is your need, not his need. It's your need that is being met. In Isaiah 55, verse 3, Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. All that you see in that character of my love for him and my promises to him, they'll be yours. Just come to me and live, is the promise, is the call, I should say. We read in Sunday school this morning from John chapter 7, where Jesus on that last day of the feast, that great day, stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, Let him come to me. Let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. What a blessed and glorious invitation to come and to consider him who is the living God, not for his profit, but for yours. Now, in this text, in Malachi chapter 3, you have this grand event announced that the Lord whom you seek is going to come suddenly to his temple. 
And there are three phases to this one grand event. Some would argue more, but for our purposes, we'll just say three. We can speak of the three comings of the Savior, which really make up just one great and dramatic coming. When we speak of his first coming in the incarnation, you can easily see how those who were unprepared for it were caught off guard and even reacted with violence. The prophet says here, the Lord whom you seek is suddenly going to come to his temple and then he is going to be like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And you remember we talked about that word suddenness last week and suddenness doesn't in this context mean just quickly, but it means disarmingly, ruinously coming, uh, destroying and, and bringing fear and awe in the coming. And so he's suddenly going to come in that way. And then he's going to sit as a refiner of fire. So in first coming, we see the of it, how men were unprepared for it, and how they responded with violence when he came, because it wasn't what they wanted to hear. He wasn't the messenger they were looking for. He didn't bring the message they wanted to hear. They weren't looking for him to delight in him. They were looking for something else. And so when he came and was really there in their presence, they were utterly unprepared. Secondly, there's his present coming through the ministry of the word and the work of the gospel and the church. And it's evident in this coming also. It's evident that there's a strong and violent reaction, both in the broader culture and even in the individual who's confronted with the gospel and the message of redemption. When Christ is presented as the savior of men, not all men and women throw up their hands and surrender. Many despise the message of the gospel. Others fight against it in their own hearts and lives, and they struggle against any kind of conviction or any kind of idea of surrendering to Christ and the idea of Christ. The culture itself despises this message and despises Christ himself. They don't want this message going forth into the world. We've talked about how there's coming a day when preaching the gospel may very well be considered disinformation that needs to be silenced in our society. I don't think we're far from that. And that's because they don't want to hear this. The messenger has come, but they don't want to hear him. They don't want to see him. They don't want to know what he has to say. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verses 15 through 16, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. They get the scent of Christ from you. And to one, it's a fragrance of death to death. They're dead and they don't want to hear it. To the other a fragrance from life to life. For some, when you come bearing the gospel and the gospel truth, they want to hear it, they want to know it, and they're, they're thankful to hear it and they embrace it in love. So there's his first coming in his incarnation when he came to Bethlehem. There's his second coming, which is, no, I shouldn't call it his second coming. There's this other manifestation of his coming in which 
he's being preached and presented to the world, and it's the work of the gospel ministry in the world. And then thirdly, there's his imminent return. And that's the third and final use of the expression. It's coming in power and great glory. And it's hard to, as, as I said, to, to separate these because they're all part of one great truth or event. But it's painfully true that if you're not spiritually prepared for the sudden appearance of the Son of Man, it will be just that, sudden and ruinous. It will catch you like an ambush or like a snare, or like a trap, and you will rue the day for all eternity. In part, beloved, because if you have not come to Christ, your own conscience is telling you that you're the work of God's hand. You are unique. That uniqueness tells you you are created by him and you need to make peace with him. The mission of Christ is regarded as a whole, from the manger of Bethlehem to the throne of judgment, and declared to be for the fall as well as for the rising of many in Israel, said T.V. Moore. And it's my conviction, along with others, that all this is referred to here in Malachi chapter 3, and that the imagery applies across the board. It has an application to his incarnation. It has an application to the, the age of the preaching and teaching of the gospel. And it has an application to his eminent return. We look specifically at the text. Look at verse 2. Malachi 3.2. Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he's like refiner's fire and fuller's soap. Now this warning, and that's what it is, it's a warning, applies to the whole story of Christ or the Messiah's coming into the world. The day of his coming and his appearing are not to be limited to the first advent of Messiah, but to his entire work, including the whole period of time that shall end with a judgment. The day of his coming is parallel to the day of the Lord, mentioned so frequently in, in the prophets, and afterwards called the great and dreadful day of the Lord, where it is obviously identical with the day spoken of here, says Moore. Now, I want to get a picture in mind here. You have to have it in mind to, to kind of get the feel for what's being said here. A man and a woman find a lovely place to build their home. And it's in a green and lush forest on a beautiful lake. And it seems to be the ideal location for a home. But they're prudent. And they realize that there are dangers in life and, and you have to be careful. So because they're in the midst of a forest, they make sure there's fire service nearby. And even before they settle in their home, they make sure there's a hydrant not far from their house, just in case there's an emergency. They install a state-of-the-art alarm system. 
and sprinkler system in their home. So if there's even a whiff of danger, that sprinkler system will engage and will shower down and, and water the home. To further protect them, they put up cameras and they put up burglar alarms. Every window is wired, every door is protected. They buy a four-wheel drive vehicle to make sure that they can travel in all sorts of weather conditions. And just in case, they stockpile all kinds of supplies, all sorts to be sure that they can survive if they're isolated. Lots of food, lots of water, uh, even medical supplies, just in case. And they settle down to live in their home, feeling secure and self-sufficient. The next day, Mount St. Helens erupts. And all their preparations and all their security measures prove absolutely useless in the power and force of the blast. And their home and their lives are swept away in a moment. All the strategy, all the clever planning does them no good at all. It was all swept away as if it didn't exist. Men, women, and children set up all sorts of stratagems against God and the gospel against God and his word. They build little fortresses about them of denials and doubts. They dismiss the gospel as foolish. They deny that there's a God and feel secure because they, don't, they aren't threatened by God because they don't believe there's a God. So they're secure. They bring forward explanations and boastful reasonings, all designed to protect them from what the Word of God says and what the Day of Judgment threatens. The problem is, beloved, that when Christ comes again, it will all be swept away, for his coming is like a refiner's fire, like Fuller's soap. Just like all the protections of that home, swept away by that eruption in that volcano, so by the coming of Christ, everyone who has put their trust or their confidence in anything else will have it swept completely away, and they will stand there naked before the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory and his power and his authority. And there he will be, standing as a refiner's fire and as fuller's soap. Now, those two terms don't mean much to you and me. Um, and to most people, they don't mean anything. Some have a general idea if they're going to have a refiner's fire, it's probably got to be really hot. But how hot? If I told you it was 1,400 degrees, can you kind of sit back in your pew and say, oh, yeah, I can feel what that's like? Anybody can do that? No, we, we, we can't imagine that in our minds. What in the world is Fuller's soap? That's pretty much a mystery to most people. The refiner's fire is meant to burn away and separate all impurities. And 
sharing with you the numbers of degrees wouldn't mean anything. The thing to focus on is that if your trust and confidence is in anything less than what God accepts as the pure truth, it will be burned away in the moment of his return. We may even say in the moment of your return to him. It'll all be burned away and gone. Christ, by his word, Stock says, destroys the wicked and unbelievers, and such as resist his will, but saves such as are chosen, making them, by that word, more and more pure and perfect. So by that refiner's fire, he takes those who are his by faith, and he refines them in their faith and in their confidence and their hope in him. But that same fire burns away all false prospects, all false hopes. Fuller's soap refers to an alkali-based soap that was used to bleach material in a process that involved the application of the soap and pounding. <laughs> you put whatever material you wanted to clean in the, in the bowl or in the tub, you poured the soap in, the water in, and then you pounded it. You kept pounding it until there were, to all the stains, all the mire, whatever it was, was gone. And the thing about alkali burns is that they cause irreversible changes. You have an alkali burn, it's not like a burning from a candle or from a fire. Because the alkali actually changes the proteins of the tissue that is burned so that it cannot recover. And that's why that term is used here. It so destroys those false hopes that they can't be recovered. You can't come back to them. There's no way that they're going to be able to withhold you in any way. They bleached everything out of the cloth. And the emphasis here is the fact that nothing less than what is absolutely pure would remain. And the coming of Christ is like that. It either brings purification or ruin. For those who have their faith resting in the righteousness that promises liberty and life to you, body and soul, through Jesus Christ, it promises refinement. And the Christian can say with Job, he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Christ is to his as the fuller's soap, making them pure and holy, giving them a luster in their lives in holiness and righteousness as stock. But to all who have their trust in themselves, either in their own judgment about what eternity is and what sin is and, and, and how to live or die before God, and so all their own judgment, or their own actions because they're hoping that they've done enough to be somehow considered righteous, well, the soap bleaches and burns away all that is impure. And it leaves such a man or woman with nothing in the end. And who can abide the day of his coming? And who can stand and face him? Who can behold him? And on his or her own, 
in the face of his holiness, righteousness, purity, power, authority, and all, stand. They can't and they won't be able to. (coughs) Now, men and women can defy him and deny him, and they can do it maliciously and even with a blasé disregard. But, beloved, when he makes himself known to the hard heart that he intends to make his own, he will break it and he will overcome it. And in that day when he returns to this world in triumph, when the last of his elect are gathered in, no one, friend or enemy, is going to be able to stand. In Isaiah 45, the God who is doing this says in verse 22, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. The Apostle Paul references those words in his epistle or letter to the Philippians, writing that Christ came to earth in the incarnation, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Suddenly, either every nagging doubt and fear about who Christ might be will be realized, or every joy and expectation, not gradually or gently, as the gospel calls, uh, calls forth now, but absolutely, forcefully, powerfully, irresistibly, men will be brought to their knees before him and confess that he indeed is Lord. In Revelation 22, Jesus says there in verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon. Where have we heard those words before? Oh, well, Malachi chapter 3, right? In the very beginning of this. They're saying, the people are saying, where's justice? Where's the coming day of the Lord? The response is, it's coming. The messenger who you must seek will suddenly come to his temple. Jesus says here, behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Now you must see, if you're willing to look at it, that the same urgency appears in these words of Jesus as appear in the prophecy of Malachi. The prophet says, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly appear in his temple. Jesus says here, I am coming soon. In the first clause, it didn't seem, excuse me, in the first case, it didn't seem that soon. 
until it happened. But all of a sudden, things began unfolding in a relentless course until all was fulfilled. And that's exactly what's going on now. And it's what will be. In 1 John 2, verse 28, John says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. But just briefly as we close, consider what's going on. He's sitting as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift witness against the sorcerers. You remember what we just read a moment ago from Revelation? Who's outside? These people, these same ones. The connection between these two passages is clear. The sorcerers against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. By his coming and saving his people through his death and resurrection, Jesus now sits like a refiner, working upon his own, bringing them to himself, purifying them in the crucible of his providence and his grace. All of you who are his this morning are those of you uh, that he is drawing to himself. You're in that crucible and he's purifying you. He chastens every son and daughter whom he loves. And to what end? That you might offer to him offerings in righteousness. Why is it likened to a refiner's fire? The sins and corruptions of God's children sit close to them and cleave fast. And are not to be separated but with much force and violence as dross to silver. To teach every man not to look to be separated from his dross and corruption without violence, and that he must offer violence to them to be rid of them. I believe, beloved, with other commentators, that we can safely take this term, the sons of Levi here, as representing the priesthood of the believer in Christ. But what does that look like in practical terms? Well, let me give this example quickly. Your husband, for example praying and seeking to love your wife as Christ loves the church. You may have some confidence that you're serving God and that you're serving her well. And as you enjoy that confidence, a little pride makes its way into your heart and into your mind. And a little satisfaction begins to seep in. and impurity, so to speak. The refiner turns up the heat, and by that trial of that heat, exposes it. And the husband falls back on Christ alone. And now his loving service to his wife is purified. 
Because before, when it was being done out of some sense of self-satisfaction or some self-trust, it was not a pure sacrifice to the Lord. But when he's reminded again, no, I am sinning against God, I am sinning against her, and my only hope is Christ and his forgiveness of sin, then the sacrifice of that service to her in the name of Christ is purified because it's done in his name. Not in your strength, but in his strength, to his glory. And the, the fire, the trial, pushes that out of you and makes that reality or restores that reality to your heart. And we could reference many things in this context. But the point is that Christ keeps bringing his own back to the reality that it's Christ alone, the one mediator between God, uh, between God and man. In 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter writes, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. But notice that this is something else for those who are not his by faith. To these, the refiner draws near in judgment. These fall into several general groups, we might call. Those involved in false religions, and those who are serving um, the God uh, of self, those who are involved in the occult, those who are sexually immoral, those who claim that lies are truth, and those who oppress others, however that oppression takes place. That is anyone who has the advantage over another and uses it for harm or to harass or to exploit them, in short. Anyone who doesn't fear the Lord of hosts. And I find these final words quite revealing. When a man or a woman of any age chooses to stand against the Lord, he or she stands absolutely alone. In other words, the atheists of the world can all join together and proclaim their unbelief and their opposition to the Lord. But in the day of judgment and accountability, Each stands before God alone. It is you before God. Not you and your friends. Not you and all the other unbelievers from around the world. And it's just the same way for believers. It is just you. We stand before him alone in the day of judgment. He would judge and condemn Neither should there be any evasion from his judgments, neither any way to escape them, seeing he will be both witness and judge from whose knowledge and power and uprightness they cannot exempt themselves. So that same witness that tells you you're a unique person should also witness to you that you're going to stand alone before God. But notice how it's said here. 
I will judge who, those who do not fear me, the Lord of hosts. And this implies that it will be you alone versus God and the multitudes of heaven and earth who love and serve him. Just think of that moment. Here I am standing alone before God, and there he is, the Lord of hosts, surrounded by the multitudes who have bowed to him, who have acknowledged Christ as their savior, who are a part of his kingdom, and the angelic hosts who serve him. And all of them are standing there with him in the, in the center, so to speak, as your judge, and there you are alone. And you say, well, you know, I got thinking about it, and uh, uh, I didn't think the Bible made sense. And that's the defense you're going to bring in the face of this witness and testimony before the Lord of hosts. There's no hope in it, beloved. It needs to be abandoned. But consider the blessing and opportunity set before you who are Christ. In him you are free to offer the sacrifices of obedience and praise. Paul says, on that ground, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Beloved, that's what we're called on to do as the people of God. And that's what he's liberated us to do. You and I are the sons and daughters of Levi, who are able to make sacrifices in righteousness, not because we give so much, but because we rest in Christ alone. And that's what makes what we give acceptable in God's sight. If you're here this morning and you have built yourself some sort of secure house of doubt and, and denial of who Christ is and what he's promised for you, abandon that now because it will not stand you in the day of judgment, not for an instant. And come to him who has promised life, who has promised to give you life and all the blessings of the sure mercies of David, so that you won't have to stand that day of judgment alone before the witness of God and his angels and the believers of all generations, that you'll be able to stand with them glorifying and honoring the Redeemer. Let's pray. Father, we think of the profound character of this prophecy. And Lord, it is so hard to distill down because it is so grand. And I pray, Father, that uh, in that attempt this morning, you will offer a blessing. I pray, Lord, for your mercy to go out to any who are standing in doubt, denial, in regards to the Lord Jesus Christ. That even now they will...